We're back for another episode of Panastoria. And today, Lindsay, you, you go ahead and announce it. Yeah, so today we're going to kind of continue with our theme of regional history here and uh, talk about Western Canadian separatism. So this, this episode's called Let the Eastern Bastards Freeze in the Dark, which uh, <laughs> became a popular slogan in Alberta in the 1980s, uh, which I think we kind of mentioned in the last episode with about Peter Lougheed, but uh, you'll start to see see why that caught on throughout this episode. <laughs> uh, either way, it's super awesome and it's, it's hilarious. So we're running with it. I'm going to try not to get worked up in this episode because I just don't believe that this is worth getting worked up over. Yeah, uh, just like some housekeeping stuff, actually. We have an Instagram account now, so find us on there. It's at uh, Panhistoria Podcast. And also, I uh, quit one of my jobs, so now we have a little bit more time to do this more regularly. So hopefully we'll be able to start doing more bi-weekly releases. It'll actually be... Yeah, we'll actually... We were doing, we were doing fine at the beginning, and yeah. then... After, after the crusade episodes things kind of went out of hand you know summer summer does that so we're hoping to, to have a lot Life more does that. yeah we're hoping to have a lot more regular releases soon but um also we've reached a milestone we have 200 total downloads on podbean which is super exciting so thanks to everyone who has downloaded episodes and listened and uh, tell your friends, and if they're not caught up on things, then kick their asses and tell them to listen. The, the fact that we managed to reach the second milestone so quickly is incredible, and thank you guys so much. Yeah, we're really excited about it, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to keep growing. And uh, once again, we're on Patreon as well, so if you do feel the need to, if you do feel like you want this to keep going and to get better, uh, please throw us a bone on there. We would really appreciate it. Any money that we do receive really just goes back into making this podcast better. So I want to get a better mic. Yeah. Yeah. And like soundproofing. That too. Definitely that can't do it here. Um, no. But, but yeah, eventually yeah. all the any money we make will go back into the podcast in one way or another, including being able to provide some, uh, some paid content for those who do throw us some money. So we'd really appreciate that. But again, if you can't, then continue listening anyways we appreciate all support i'm gonna probably post one of my papers on the patreon account for paying well for brian <laughs> yeah uh, it's we, still uh, just brian well one of, one of the one of the paid content things that we want to do is start um a blog with uh academic contributors and about different subjects so i think we'll probably start with just me and jonah for now and we have people interested but we want to be able to to pay them a little bit for their work. We don't believe in pay, unpaid work except for the stuff that we do. Yeah. Uh, but which is a lot. Um, not the point though. So yeah, stay tuned for that. And yeah, it's one of the many perks that you'd get for su- subscribing on Patreon is access to extra content that we want to provide. Just so, just yeah. a quick preview of what I'm going to be posting. It's about a war between Honduras and El Salvador known as the football war. And most people know it as or believe they know they believe that it was a war started all because of a football game or a series of football games, soccer games here in North America. But in reality, it was a lot more complex than that. And that was what my paper was on was the real reasons behind this conflict and why it was so significant. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be posted by you as you're listening to it. It's going to be posted because I'm going to post it the same day this is released. So stay tuned, Brian. 
And whoever it's just going to be Brian, I, that, unless someone else joins. So. Thanks, Brian. We really appreciate you. Anyways, as we'll dive right into this. Go but, right uh, ahead. Okay, so, yeah, sticking with Canadian history, uh, regional conflict in Canada is kind of a historical trend, like due large in part to the fact that Canada is geographically huge. The landmass that Canada takes up is pretty significant, obviously. As a result of that, there's also a pretty large, like, disproportional population spread in Canada. So most of the population resides in Ontario and Quebec, which is central Canada, so we're going to refer to it. The West, as we're referring to it, is uh, the provinces of British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. For the most part, these provinces are fairly large with low population density. Saskatchewan being kind of the worst in terms of that. I think it has one of the lowest population densities in the world. <laughs> but anyways, low population density in these provinces means less representation in parliament uh, because Canada has a rep by pop situation going on. So that means that Western Canadians often feel like we don't get to take part in the policy making, which actually does affect us, obviously. So we do feel like we're not really contributing federally or able to contribute federally just because we're not well represented because we have small populations. These feelings are not new, and they've existed for quite a long time, but they were kind of reached their height in the 1980s under Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and that came to a head with the national energy policy, which we talked about last week, and I'm going to talk about again today, because, or last episode, not last week. Um, but I'm going to talk about it again today because it's pretty hard to avoid. A definition, I guess, for like Western alienation, which is sort of how I'm going to talk about this here, is, uh, quote, it's a political ideology based on discontent with the West's subordinate position in the nation's cultural, economic, and political fabric, a position that frustrates aspirations and dreams. It embraces rather than rejects a sense of Canadian nationalism and expresses the desire, but not the institutional capacity to play a larger role in national life. Western alienation reflects a search for recognition of the West's contribution to Canada in the past and its potential contribution to the country's future. End quote. So policies influenced these feelings of alienation like policies passed by the federal government but the primary feelings of alienation mostly just stem from the lack of political weight that the west feels that it has so the substance of these policies matter but the policies mattered more as like their role as symbols of alienation it, to, some, it's, to some extent it didn't matter exactly what the substance of the policy was so much that the policy existed and it represented this feeling of being left out or that we weren't really be, or the West wasn't really being taken into account. And so when I say we, it's really just because I'm from the West. <laughs> I don't necessarily condone or agree with many of the feelings people have, but I also understand some of that, that need to feel included. But the most common source of tension usually falls around election time and the way the country's geography contributes to feelings of inequality. So for example, since we're talking about the 80s here, in the 1980 election, Trudeau had won a majority government in the House of Commons before Western votes had even been counted. This is still pretty common, ultimately, because polls close in the East, obviously, a lot sooner than they close in the West, just due to time zones and geography. I mean, it's still still a cause of tension, ultimately. So now Supreme Court Justice Sheila Martin, at the time that I had written about her, she was not a Supreme Court Justice, but now she is, had moved to Calgary before that election and recalls having not understood that what Western alienation was about until that election and recalls feeling dismayed at the fact that an election had been won before her vote had even been counted, which makes... Her vote and everyone else in the West vote seem pretty unimportant. I mean, it matters for official vote counts at the end, but I mean, if they've already won before you've been counted, like, what's the point in voting? There's definitely still a point in voting. Please vote. I'm not saying don't <laughs> vote. Anyway. But it's important to note, since we're talking about Western Canadian separation, that Western alienation at its core is not a need to separate, but a wanting to be included in the process and receive recognition. 
Uh, so yeah, I guess spoiler alert, we're going to move towards talking about a separation movement that existed in Western Canada. But anyways, alienation at its core is not really a need to separate, but a wanting to be included in the process. So feelings of alienation vary depending on time and history and region. And the West is a large area, which shouldn't be considered homogenous. Some areas feel differently than others and are pretty culturally different. Some policies had more of an effect on the prairies only, while others, such as freight charges, affected everybody in the West. Freight charges really just being the cost of getting stuff to the West. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so grievances varied pretty regionally, but the general consensus was discontent with the Eastern-biased central government. The West had some hope while Joe Clark from Alberta was prime minister, but that was pretty short-lived. He was only prime minister for a year. And, less uh, than that. Less than that, yeah. Like eight, eight months at And the most. soon after, Trudeau was back in power. So Trudeau was prime minister from 1968 to 1979, lost to Joe Clark and was member of the official op- or leader of the official opposition and then was back in, from power from 1980 <laughs> to 1984. So he had a pretty long tenure as the leader of the Liberal Party. It's kind of a shame about Joe because he was actually a decent guy. Yeah. Yeah, his career kind of took a nosedive. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, the, re- the re-election of Trudeau in 1980 was met with some suspicion and skepticism in the West. I don't think he was particularly popular in the first part of his <laughs> tenure, but he definitely did not help his cause in this his second run as prime minister. So tension certainly already existed, and the apparent lack of importance of Western votes to the outcome of that election did not help that tension at all but making matters worse was that Trudeau's chosen cabinet was mostly comprised of ministers from Ontario and Quebec meaning a distinct lack of western influence I mean people in the west obviously expect most governments to be fairly centric to Ontario and Quebec but it's always a nice ode when more and more ministers from the west are included because I mean the liberal party does have members from (laughs) from the western provinces not many but a few But anyways, whether or not it was intentional, and honestly, it probably wasn't intentional to choose mostly ministers from Ontario and Quebec, it was one of the first moves towards further alienation of the West by the Trudeau administration. And the decisive push into feelings of serious alienation was the national energy policy, which we talked about last week when we talked, or God, not last week, last episode, I'm sorry. (laughs) We talked about Peter Lockheed, but we're going to discuss it again because it's pretty important to everything in this whole story. (laughs) So to recap, the NEP was introduced on October 28th, 1980, and the official goals of the program were, quote, to establish the basis for Canadians to seize control of their own energy future through security of supply and ultimate independence from the market, to offer Canadians, all Canadians, the real opportunity to participate in the energy industry and, in general, in petroleum industry in particular, and to share the benefits of industry expansion, to establish a petroleum pricing and revenue-sharing regime that recognizes the requirement of fairness to all Canadians, no matter where they live. So as we discussed in the last episode, the NEP was really a reaction to the unstable supply of oil at the time due to OPEC and tensions in the Middle East. And the NEP was designed to shelter Canada from the fallout of any future conflict, and therefore, you know, mostly stem. Keep high gas prices is not really a huge thing. The thing about high oil prices is that it high oil prices is that it magnified any economic problems Canada was already facing, which we were, and it also increased inflation, which is usually not a good thing. The federal government saw that the already existing agreements and revenue sharing as continuing the shift towards as continuing to shift towards the benefits of the oil industry and the Alberta Treasury, not really the country as a whole. So these agreements also began to pose a challenge to the federal ability to maintain economic control as well. And in the process tamper with the intricate process of the federal to provincial equalization payments. And equalization payments are definitely still a hotbed issue that 
probably do need some explaining, but we're not really going to talk about too much right now because it would be a bit of a bit of a digression. But ultimately, they're still a source of Western and Eastern tension because the, the provinces that pay into equalization the most are also in the West, and the ones who receive the most are in the East. So it certainly contributes to tension between provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan and those in Central and Eastern Canada. So Western alienation is still definitely a thing, in case anyone was thinking it went away. It's not as... It's I, different. It's, it's changed. It's definitely different. It's not so much alienation as just animosity. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Mostly because populations have grown. But anyways, uh, the newly elected Liberal government decided to take action against the industry and the producing provinces. The NEP was used as a tool for promoting nationalism as well, like Canadian nationalism. So the rhetoric of the NEP was strongly centralist, emphasizing that all Canadians had a right to participate in the industry and to share the benefits. Because of this, traditional party politics were turned upside down. So historically, up to that point, the progressive conservatives were the party of state intervention and federalism, and the liberals were a hands-off regionalist party, which is kind of a shift <laughs> from where we are now, but that's what it was before this point, to some extent. So with the Trudeau liberals, the tables had pretty much turned. Uh, the NEP served as an excellent means of expressing the, different, the differing interests of the two major parties. So the goals of the NEP did not matter much to those who were affected by it, particularly in, oil, in producing provinces like Alberta. Didn't really matter what they said the goals were. They were still pissed about it. <laughs> so oil men, in, oil men in the West actually saw the NDP as, quote, a wild random action of socialist-inclined government, end quote. The conservative government in Alberta, led by Premier Peter Lougheed, likely shared those fears as well, and the reaction of the government was as negative and hostile as private citizens and the industry people. So the implementation of the NEP became a direct challenge to the power of the Alberta government and the control it had over the oil industry. As you might remember, Peter Lougheed really championed expanding the oil field and that part of Alberta's economy, trying to shift Alberta from being purely agriculturally based to something a little bit more modern. So this was a pretty direct challenge to his, uh, his power. <laughs> as we mentioned in that episode, he pretty much spent most of his time as premier fighting the federal government on this subject, so... On uh, November 2nd, 1980, just five days after the introduction of the NEP, Lougheed issued his plan to get back at the federal liberals. So this was the beginning of of his crusade, I guess. His own personal, his, well, not really personal, but his crusade against the federal government. So his first step was to reduce the pot production of oil and gas to 85% of its full capacity, which part of that was holding back development of the oil sands, which are still controversial, <laughs> and are still also a major cash cow for the industry, and they were at the time too, so... Cutting back oil, basically his plan was to reduce production in order to show the federal government that, like, well, if you want to take the money, there's just going to be less of it. <laughs> and uh, so along with that, Lougheed also took the government to court. He challenged the idea that the federal government had access to royalties of products or of things, of, of the resources produced in a province. And he took them to the Supreme Court. And two years later, Alberta actually won that fight. So the reason we don't still have the NEP is in part because it was wildly unpopular, but mostly because it was unconstitutional. But, uh, and the Constitution is something else I'm going to talk about. <laughs> so the results of the NEP were pretty far-reaching. Uh, the goal was to Canadianize the industry, and it could be considered an admiral pursuit. Um, I think, ultimately, the goal was to try and reduce the amount of foreign ownership, because, I mean, what's the point of having domestically produced oil if it's owned by people not Canadian? But it caused plenty of problems for people in Alberta because uh, it led to a continuing legacy of, and it also led to a continuing legacy of bitterness. Um, I know that people in my family still talk pretty, they're pretty hurt still. Um, I mean, it had really real effects. 
Papa um, John, if you're listening. Yeah. I know. I know you have your yeah. disagreements with him. But uh, so the reason, basically, what happened, the reason why it caused this really large kerfuffle in Alberta, on top of just feeling insulted, but it actually had some really real impacts. Foreign companies reacted to the NEP by selling off all of their investments in Alberta. And that spiked unemployment and in turn left many Albertans unable to pay mortgages, which then led to the crash of the real estate market. So my family was also personally really affected by this. People lost tons of money and I think my grandpa was pretty heavily invested in real estate and lost lost a lot. So when I was doing my research on this, I, I actually originally wrote a paper on this for a, a class in my undergrad and I found this source uh, by Robert Mason Lee and in his essay called The Smart and Determined SOB, Trudeau in the West, um, Lee questioned much of the debate around the NEP, but recalls the effects being really real. Quote, my house dropped in value by one third overnight. My brother lost his job. My father, who had put his money in real estate at, the, at Uncle Alan's urging, saw his last chance of a comfortable retirement fly away like cinders. Whatever other objectives it might have claimed, the NEP was cruelly efficient at economic assassination. End quote. And so I think that quote, like, I kind of chose it because it, it sums up the experience of a lot of people in Alberta in the 1980s. It wasn't just certain people that were hurt. It was like actually a really large economic downturn in Alberta and was one of the worst recessions we've had in a long time. So yeah, it was it was pretty major and did a lot of really nasty things. And obviously when people lose livelihoods and honestly, this wasn't that long ago, it's enough to, to kind of see why there's still some harbor, some harbored resentment existing. But uh, anyway, Lee pins Alberta's reaction to the constitutional wars to Trudeau and to Quebec as being largely a hangover from the NEP and that the NEP shattered any illusions of generosity from Ottawa. Lee remembered himself being on the fence about Trudeau, defending him now and then. He wasn't really against him, wasn't really a fan. But then the NEP happened and after that his views had changed and he found himself sharing a common sentiment found in feelings of alienation. Quote, I decided when placing your faith in those sons of bitches in Ottawa, it was best to be suspicious as hell. And I also love that quote just because, like, one, it's kind of entertaining, but two, it does definitely still ring pretty true. There's still a lot of, like, I guess, uh, just suspicion (laughs) regarding the federal government. They haven't always had the greatest record in helping uh, the West. But, yeah, Lee Lee was obviously not alone in those feelings and probably still isn't if that's the case. (laughs) Because feelings of alienation in the West really only got worse from that point. The combination of exclusion from federal decision-making and such intrusive policies like the NEP created ill feeling towards Trudeau's administration, further alienation, and distrust of all federal power. (laughs) So the feelings of alienation became strong enough that separatist thoughts began to surface once again. There's always been populist separatist thoughts. But regional nationalism was not really a new concept, and like Quebec, the West had also resented the intrusion of the federal government on what was clearly provincial territory. But the Western... And the Western and Quebec separatist movements could agree really on that much, but their interests diverged from there, and neither movement really supported each other with any great enthusiasm. The biggest differences were, and I'm going to turn this over to Jonah in a sec, but I'll just lay this out. Uh, The differences ultimately were these. Um, The main quest of Quebec was to have constitutional recognition as its own distinct society and has no Western, and the West doesn't have that kind of equivalent. In the West, the reform of parliamentary institutions was the major, major point. The only support they found in that in Quebec was that both sides found interest in how the Supreme Court judges were appointed. That was pretty much one of the only points they actually really agreed on. The West is fundamentally happy with the way the division of power works, but their main objective, if not to separate entirely, was for radically reformed parliamentary institutions and all of it to be much more faithfully respected. So basically the reasoning behind that was like, 
in large bodies of government like the Senate, for instance, and even the House of Commons, the West is mostly just really underrepresented in part because of population. Well, mostly because of population. Um, And we feel, or the West has generally felt that that's unfair because the West is actually really important to Canada in that it's for the most part the economic engine. Most of the resources and agricultural production and things like that all happen in the West. And so for the most part, all the money has been in the, in the West and all the power in the East. And that's kind of led to some, some weird tension. And so not really weird tension, but it's led to some tension. And, uh, so it was important to Western nationalists, I guess, whether or not they were separatists or not. And, and not even really strong, like strong nationalists, but people who just generally felt that the West was underappreciated and, and not really taken seriously. And, so by reforming bodies like the Senate and even just how many seats in the House of Commons go to each province, things like that were really at the, the heart of most of their protest, I suppose, and also, obviously, intrusive policies like the NEP. <laughs> but uh, on the subject of actual separatism, I'm going to turn this over to Jonah here because he's got some information about some of the actual parties that, that existed. Yeah, parties and certain people. Uh, as if you can hear the <laughs> lack of enthusiasm in my voice it's because i'll be straight up honest i find western canada separatism to be super illegitimate and stupid and i actually <laughs> i would say the newfoundland independence movement is more <laughs> legitimate than this one <laughs> i mean as much as i, I i've kind of made fun of Quebec I can understand their reasons for it whereas like in Western Canada I can understand the reasons for alienation but not separation and I think most people probably feel that way to be honest they definitely do as we will fi- about to find out the largest party in for separation by far was what known as Western Canada concept it's founded in 1980 and its main focus was the separation of British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Yukon, and the Northwest Territories into a new country. Uh, if you notice, I didn't say none of it is because none of it at the time was not a territory. It was part of the Northwest Territories. Yes. They were Republican in terms of they wanted Western Canada to be a republic. They also advocated for direct democracy, fiscal and social conservatism. So their main things were pro-life and anti-euthanasia. They were also anti-immigration. Today, they would be known as the Christian right. And they also promoted what is known as European values and were also anti-bilingual. Also, something interesting to note, too. Sorry, I just found a note on this. Mm-hmm. Is that unlike some of the major separatist parties in Quebec, like the Bloc Québécois, Western Canada concept didn't have any federal aspirations, like, at all, really. No. They, they, were completely they were a regional party because everyone was so suspicious of national parties that I think that they felt that staying as a regional party would make them stronger. And ultimately it did because they did actually manage to establish or influence a number of established parties too, mm-hmm. unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> their program, and this is taken directly from their site, which is still up, which you'll find out is weird for a reason. This is directly, quote, um, quote word for word on the website uh, in their program independence for western canada chosen by the people of each of the four western provinces and northern territories in a referendum a citizen's constitutionally established right of reasonably 
accessible referendum initiative and recall. This is direct democracy in work. Protection for the sanctity and safety of human life, property, and security of the person and their fundamental freedoms. An end to immigration to preserve our environment, culture, and stability. Equal rights for all with no special status for any race or ethnic origin. Preservation of our Christian culture and European heritage. Did you notice that they already contradicted themselves? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A federal republic with a two-house legislature, one elected by population, the other by region, both with original legislative jurisdiction and both required to, required to approve before a law was enacted. One official language of Western Canada. Can you guess it? We're gonna we're gonna reveal at the end of the at the end of the program. But type your comment. It's, it's English, people. It's English. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, if you get this wrong, like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, It'd be great if I said something like it's German. Uh, the establishment of a balanced budget by law under the cons- constitution so f- no future debts can be incurred by the government. How they are going to do that, I have no clue. <laughs> yeah. Those were their missions. I, I Sorry, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I actually just found like another quote from a primary source on Go separatism. On. First sparks of separatism are kind of ignited after the re-election of Trudeau, but... Helping that was, um, I actually found this letter written by this guy named Elmer Knudsen to the editor of the Edmonton Journal expressing anger over the election and what it meant for the West. The letter was written as a warning to Anglophone Canadians that the English language is about to be wiped out now that Trudeau was back in power. (laughs) Knudsen remarked that the political parties had been split into camps, the Liberals representing Quebec and the French, and the Conservatives and the NDP representing the West and the English. He comments (laughs) on having always supported Quebec staying as part of the country, but now that Trudeau had been re-elected, that feeling had changed. Newton went as far as to say, quote, I now say that I now say they must do so separate or we must kick them out. We must divorce, but they cannot and must not be allowed to take all of Quebec with them. He outlined the area that must separate as being south of the St. Lawrence River, Montreal and Quebec City. And if they do not go, then Western Canada must separate physically as, quote, we did politically last night, February 18th, 1980, end quote. Uh, Newton's letter received widespread support. <laughs> Newtson's himself being overwhelmed by phone calls and letters, and within six weeks had received 3,800 replies spanning from Vancouver to Winnipeg. After Quebec voted no in their referendum of 1980, Newtson and other alienated Westerners decided to take action. On May 24th, 1980, he launched um, another separation party, Mm -hmm. (laughs) WestFed. So, um, yeah, I just just thought that I would include, I I would interject with that right now because it kind of... Like what he, his fears of like the French taking over and like English superiority and stuff kind of really fit in with what you were talking about. So stupid. <laughs> and I just I just found it again and it was kind of entertaining and sad. So uh, <laughs> anyway, back to you. <laughs> well, the part of the reason why, even though these were this was the largest of the separation parties, despite all of the anger towards Ottawa and everything, they did not do very well. <laughs> In Alberta, they only saw one person elected, Gordon Kessler, who was the leader. I don't know. I can't remember if he was leader of the whole party or just the Alberta branch. But he was elected in a 1982 by-election in the Old Stidsbury. And then nine months later, he lost his seat by 5,000 votes. <laughs> so only nine months. When he, and he ran, but he ran in a different seat. He ran in Highwood, which is where he actually lived. And he lost by 5,000 seats. To the Progressive Conservative Association. 
the more successful, and I say successful in quotations, were in Saskatchewan, where two whole members were elected in 1986. And then both representatives were later kicked out of the party. <laughs> Couldn't find out why, but I can't imagine. One of the main people in this party was a man named Doug Christie. He's definitely the most well-known individual when it comes to Western Canada separation because he just wouldn't go away for the longest time. I know some of you, most of you probably have never heard of this man and you're lucky. This man was a lawyer and he was famous for defending Holocaust deniers, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, fascists, all sorts of different dickheads. He was a member of Western Canada Concept and he tried to take over the leadership of the party. Didn't work. He was expelled from Western Canada Concept in 1981 for his extremist views. And he attempted to become a member of the Alberta and Manitoba branch and they just outright rejected him. Unfortunately, he became leader of the BC branch somehow. He later founded a different uh, a different separatist party, which I'll get to in a moment. And then he died in 2013. That's all there really needs to be said about Doug Christie. I'm not a huge fan of him. And neither were a lot of Western Canada concept. Uh, in fact, 150 former WCC members, they wanted to distance themselves from Christie's policies. And whatnot. they left WCC and formed the Western Independence Party. This is also, I'm going to post this on the Facebook, Facebook page, excuse me. Uh, Western Canada actually has a flag. It's not official, but it, it's there. And Western Independence Party actually adopted it as their official flag. So if, if they were going to become independent under that party, that, that would have been our flag. I'll post it. They were started in the local branch was in Saskatchewan, but it was also affiliated with the Alberta Independence Party and Alberta First. I'll get to them in a moment. They were way less successful than WCC, never had any members elected, and they became inactive after 1988. But they were resurrected in 2005. So they're kind of still around. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it was them, but I know in the 2011, I want to say, election, or maybe 2012. 2012? 11. Was it 11? There was a uh, Western Separatist Party. I can't remember which one on the ballot in our, in our local, in, in my writing. And in... I know which one it is, and I'm going to get to that. Okay. I actually know which I one it is. I can't remember. I don't remember seeing it, but. I think I know what it is. I shouldn't. Anyway, they also had a manifesto, and this is taken for word. They felt independence was the only way Westerners could get a political and economic justice. The constitutional right to private property, the citizens' right to a referendum on major issues, including the Constitution and constitutional amendments, English as the official language, and an elected, equal, and effective Senate. Which, to be fair, that goal is not, like, awful. No, it's not. Some of these are actually pretty decent goals. It's just some of them are stupid. Yeah. Like, independence. <laughs> yeah. They wanted a prosperous, low-tax economy, direct democracy. Are you guys sensing a pattern by now? Separation of executive powers to end prime ministerial dictatorship. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> 
for, super not what I would call for, it. But. Yeah, for the American <laughs> listeners, there's no term limits on how, how long some, someone can be prime minister. No, you can be prime minister as many times as you get elected. But there has to be an election minimum every four years. Yeah. So and, it's the, and for the most part, no one's really gone that much longer than 10 years total as prime minister. Because by then, people are pretty sick of your face. <laughs> and it's, policies. Yeah. Mostly your face, though, I think. That, too. They wanted uh, an elected, accountable judiciary. Equality of treatment and opportunity for all people. An elected Senate balancing popular representation with regional representation. A world-class medical system. <laughs> a justice system that stresses accountability. No gun registry. No Kyoto Accord. And property rights guaranteed for the Constitution. Do I have to mention that these guys were conservative? <laughs> Probably not. No. No. <laughs> well, that party I mentioned Doug Christie in that he started, this was started in 2005, the Western Bloc Party. I believe that's probably who was in your writing. Probably. They were, they were, again, socially and fiscally conservative and also wanted a Western Canada Republic. They were based in Sydney, British Columbia. They never made even 1% of the total votes, even in the writings that they ran in. The most that they got was 0.40% in Edmonton Sherwood in 2011. Just a quick story. The reason why I think that it was Western Bloc is because in the 2011 election, the first ever election I voted in, one of the candidates in my riding was a man named Paul Fromm. Whom the National Post dubbed, quote, one of Canada's most notorious white supremacists. Yeah, he runs the, I'm pretty sure the party, it's still around. He runs the National Socialist Party here in in Canada. And no, Nazis were not socialists just because it was in the name. Yeah, he's a Nazi. He's a big time Nazi. But yeah, he ran into in my old riding of Calgary Southeast, but he only got 0.31% of the vote. <laughs> That's still too much for a Nazi. It's a little too much. But also, for anyone interested, yeah, that was Jason Kenney's old riding. And yes, he won. <laughs> so some briefly, some other noteworthy parties. There's a party that was at one point known as Alberta First, then Alberta Separation, then Alberta First. Then the Western Freedom Party, they were solely for Alberta independence. And there is a great article I'm going to post. And it's say it's it's I can't remember which paper wrote it, but it's the headline is literally why Alberta separatism is literally the stupidest or the dumbest movement in Canada today. (laughs) Most people will probably in Alberta will know this party by now because Derek Fildebrandt. Or Derek filled his pockets. Recently, became interim leader of the party. Still a stupid MLA. Yeah, and then changed the name to the Freedom Conservative Party. So basically, also known as the Fildebrandt Conservative. The Fildebrandt Conservative Party. It's no longer separatist, but they. It says on their website, or Derek said, "We're Alberta Patriots." Whatever the fuck that means. Derek, just stop, Derek. Does he even have any other members of the party? Is it just him? No, there are other members. Oh, God. But, Derek, just stop. Please. Yeah. Just stop. Just, just give it a rest, buddy. 
other couple parties that I thought were really interesting and funny. There's the Unionist Party of Saskatchewan and the Annexation Party of British Columbia. And both advocated their respective provinces secede and then join the United States. The, the former was active during the 1980s and the latter was only active between 2003 and 2009. Fun fact, there's also a, there's a party in Quebec called the 51st Party and they also want to separate and become part of the United States. I don't know how that's going to work. Not well. Uh, no. There's one There's one party called the Confederation of Regions Party. I doubt a lot of you will know this one. It was mostly active during the 80s. Uh, it was active in pretty much, I believe, almost every single province. They didn't want... They weren't separatists, but they were... They wanted increased autonomy for the western provinces. But they're also right-wing, nationalist... And anti-bilingual. I don't know if you really... Did you really talk about Westfed at all? No. Yeah. I didn't find anything on Westfed. Westfed basically was like that guy Newtson I talked about. He uh, started this party in uh, on May 24th, 1980. And Westfed's goal was to forge a federation of the four western provinces with such policy goals as, shockingly, ending bilingualism. Shocker. I know, right? Uh, Westfed, however, did maintain that separation was not necessary if the West and Central Canada could harbor a more favorable, favorable relationship. If this was not going to be the case, then Westfed would seek separation. That's really all I was able to find on them when I did my research. I they really didn't anything. exist that much. Yeah. Well, Confederation of Regions, they were not successful here in like anywhere, especially here. But they were most successful in New Brunswick. And uh, they were... Uh, they, Actually, I think they were the official opposition at one point. Uh, they were active federally between 1984 and 1988, and the only one that's still active today is in Ontario. Another thing I should notice, I should note, is uh, the social credit premier of BC, WAC Bennett or Wack Bennett. <laughs> he made threats to leave Confederation along with Yukon over the Columbia River Treaty, and what that was. It was an agreement between the U.S. and Canada to construct a series of dams on the Columbia River that goes between B.C. and Washington State. Most of the dams were going to be in B.C., which is what was causing such a kerfuffle. And like one was in Montana and a couple were in Washington. So they just felt it wasn't a fair deal. As you can tell, Bennett didn't go through with his promises. You'll know, we'll, we'll eventually talk about it, but the social credit party in B.C. was very weird. Yeah, the thing about the social credit party that's kind of interesting that I was like, if I found in my research a little bit was ultimately that like a lot of the separatist movements were actually pretty similar to the social credit party in general, just because like ideologically they were similar and they also just gave a rural base to all the movement leaders. Like they were kind of. Well, you notice the similar what, yeah. Christian, white, European <laughs> heritage, uh, Anglophone, Anglophone, conservative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It just screams social credit. And I mean, not to say that all social credit people were separatists, because I'm sure most of them weren't, but they were similar enough that I oh. think that the association got made a lot. Yeah. I doubt any of uh, most of them were separatists at all. It's just that obviously you can see where a lot of these idea, like these policy ideas came from. They definitely came from social credit because yeah. it's, you like look at it and you're like, that's the so creds. Yeah. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Just wait till we talk about Larry Heather. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm not talking about him in this podcast, but some people might get it. Yeah. 
that's all I have for this. Yeah, fair enough. Well, so yeah, those are, I guess, just, that's just like a rundown of some of the parties. Um, yeah, some special people involved. <laughs> but uh, I guess to kind of continue on, uh, Western Separatist parties obviously were not helped by anyone federally, except that inadvertently they did receive help from the Trudeau government. Really, because Trudeau was, like, relentless in his push to give Canada a new constitution, and the West was pretty apprehensive of that. So, in the 80s, Trudeau's goal was to bring the constitution back from the UK to Canada, so repatriation. But in doing so, he wanted to reopen the constitution and basically add things and change it, which, I mean, honestly, in the end, turned out to be fine in many cases, but... I mean, the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and things like that were all, all big parts of it. So really important things to the fabric of Canada were added in this repatriation of the Constitution. But obviously the West at the time was pretty skeptical just because they'd been bent over by Trudeau once or twice already and uh, <laughs> didn't really feel good about it. So they were pretty apprehensive. And with only two Western representatives elected at the time in that election, so part of the government. The West was obviously pretty wary of any constitution created by a liberal government, and the constitutional issue became entwined with the issue of oil revenues, which obviously was touchy. <laughs> it's a fairly touchy subject. So, uh, interestingly enough, too, when the NEP happened, oil executives actually began to discuss separatism as well. They gave, they lent some money, I think, and to WestFed and to WCC and kind of were like not heavily involved but like some of them weren't against it like they didn't say anything for or against but they were like have some cash <laughs> and that followed that'll fix everything right throw, throw money at it <laughs> that'll work i mean i guess there's not a problem that time and money can't solve right um <laughs> but in the fall of 1981 the alberta government in ottawa made amends over the two hotbed issues of the constitution and the nep uh number one being Alberta eventually did ratify, or well, not really eventually, but they did ratify the constitution in part because of Lougheed's efforts. Yeah, it, it was, and just to recap, Lougheed was the one who, he was the leader of that movement of the other provinces, which included Quebec, and they pushed in order to have certain things put in, such as the inability to make what is, what would have been known as second-class provinces. Mm -hmm. So all pro because of his efforts and the efforts of all those other involved, the provinces are considered equal in uh, the eyes of the Constitution and no province is greater than the others. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't extend to the territories, but territories are a different case. And yeah. I did look this up. A lot of the reason why they are still territories and they will not be provinces is because they are so vast in land and they do not have massive populations. For example, Nunavut, which is by far the largest net landmass in Canada, only has around 23,000 people living in it. And this is like a place that's millions of kilometers. Yeah. I mean, part of it is also tied back to colonial times obviously, but that but in terms of that it mean that's why it's called a territory rather than a province. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the constitution was one of the issues and the other was the NEP. Um Remember, Lougheed took the government to court and won. So in 1981, that's kind of when all this came to came to a head in terms of issues actually being dealt with. Lougheed was and still is viewed as Alberta's staunchest defender. So his signing of an energy agreement with Trudeau was a sign that Western interests were no longer like mortally threatened. That was a pretty big sign for people that like, okay, well, 
if Lahid can make this work, then like I guess we'll go along with it. Yeah. And uh, something else we mentioned in the last in the Lahid episode is Lahid was very firm in confirming that he was not. Yeah, he he had no separatist dreams, or he was actually he was a he was a federalist, and he wanted the country to stay together. Absolutely, and he always he referred in a lot of his speeches he referred to. He didn't say Albertans, he said no. Canadians. So, like, in terms of, like, the NEP's language with, you know, the, the nationalist side of it and wanting all Canadians, I don't think that Lougheed was necessarily opposed to that kind of language because he used that kind of language as well. And same with the Constitution issue. He certainly, I think, really just wanted it to be best for all Canadians. He was just against the NEP trying to take Alberta's money, basically. <laughs> <laughs> which, <laughs> which I understand. But, yeah, so Lougheed definitely wasn't a separatist, had no actual affiliation with separatists other than separatists and pretty much all Albertans really just held him up as their their he, hero. It's kind of like how Nietzsche wasn't a Nazi, but the Nazis loved him. <laughs> and yeah. So I mean we're not saying Nazis love Lahid, obviously, but No. I yeah, mean, don't ever make that association. No, ever. Uh but it's it's a similar kind of thing. Like he was used as a symbol for people who he didn't really actually want to represent. Or didn't agree with necessarily, or wouldn't have agreed with. Um, and Lahid also did a lot to separate him. He did, yeah. <laughs> to, to separate himself from from the separatists. The separatists. <laughs> I, meant, I meant to say distance himself because that's a proper term. Because yeah. yeah, but he he also because I did look into this and a lot of like the way he treated as as just like us, he didn't treat them as legitimate because he didn't feel the no. sentiment was legitimate. Even when they started to influence people in his own party, he managed to really sort of like stop that. <laughs> that The other thing is a lot of, the, like you'll notice a lot of these parties, I'm not going to, they're not far right, but they're definitely right wing, except for the Western Bloc, they're definitely far right, or were, they're no, they no longer exist. But part of the reason why is a, a lot of the members of groups such as the progressive conservative party not members of like the legislature but like in like regular party members a lot of these like people who held those held those right-wing conservative views ended up joining parties or for either forming or joining parties such as western canada concept western independence and what have you yeah yeah when Lougheed kind of buried the hatchet with the federal government it was really a sign to most that separatism was no longer needed because you know, Lougheed was clearly defending the West. Because Lougheed wasn't just defending Alberta. In the end, he was defending Western interests as well. And, well, pretty much all provinces. But he became a symbol even outside of Alberta a little bit as somebody who was just trying to defend the West's interests. Much like, oddly, Brad Wall kind of became that figure most recently. Um, and he's nowhere near as awesome as Lougheed, so stop loving Brad Wall. <laughs> anyway. Didn't he say that... Calgary was stealing Saskatchewan jobs and then he moved here. Yeah. Here. <laughs> he also made a big deal about the fact that while all his clock like in the like in the last Saskatchewan election, he made a big deal about how, you know, under his government, they'd managed to maintain a large number of people staying in Saskatchewan after he graduated. And he made a big deal about how when he went to the University of Saskatchewan and, you know, he stayed in the province while everyone left. And then turns out like fast forward a couple decades and he leaves for a job too. So. Anyway, we're not going to talk about him anymore. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, the thing was kind of interesting, actually, about the separatism not really being a salient issue anymore. 
at this time was uh, many of the people who actually attended separatist meetings and kind of supported these parties later just basically claimed that they were frustrated and didn't actually want to separate, but these movements just represented their frustration. I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's the reason why people gravitate towards certain factions, I guess you can call them, when times are times are like challenging. I mean, it's even the case now, ultimately. I'm sure that a lot of people flocked towards certain leaders that they normally wouldn't necessarily agree with, but like, you know, it's extreme circumstances. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting that that was the case. And like the thing about the Western separatist movement in general that like, especially like Westfed kind of, that like line about how they didn't really want to separate, they just if they couldn't forge a better relationship, they would. I think that's so interesting compared to like Quebec separatism, where it is like, actually let's, we don't want to forge a better relationship. We actually just want to leave. And I thought that was like, it's kind of interesting how like, just how different they actually are and how like they're a separatist movement, like kind of air quotes, but ultimately separatism doesn't necessarily need to be the goal. But yeah, I mean, obviously the movement didn't die. (laughs) It just wasn't as important. But there is actually kind of a resurgence in Western separatism, but it's like a little bit different. Um, so this whole like movement for like uh, creating a country of Cascadia. Um, yeah, that's what BC, that one's. It's BC, Washington, and Oregon, and Northern California. In Northern California, and like that one's particularly fascinating to me, just because number one of any separatist of any region that could separate and actually survive economically, that's definitely one of them. Potentially, because the, the economies of those of those places are quite large. But that's not even the point. What's interesting to me about it is that it's actually still so different from the other separatist movements because that like we talked about. Because like from an ideological standpoint, it's like completely reversed. Like it honestly isn't even completely about nationalism so much as the recognition that like this area, the Pacific Northwest, is a lot more like culturally similar and like the prop like to each other, and that. Um, it would work together, like, it would make more sense from a governance standpoint. Like, it's not even, and it's it's not a serious, serious movement, um, other than they do have a pretty cool flag. It is a bit tongue-in-cheek. It, it is a little bit, yeah. Like, it's it's not really a serious, serious movement, but it, it is really fascinating. And uh, their flag is actually pretty nice. It's an, Yeah, it is a nice flag. And I have to say, uh, the, so is the Western Canada flag. It's actually pretty... yeah. But, like, the thing about the Cascadia movement versus, like, say, like, Western Canadian separatism is that even between the Western Canadian provinces, there's still a fair bit of, like, cultural kind of just, like, diversity. Even, like, comparing, like, Alberta and British Columbia, like, how would that really work? <laughs> the GDPs are also super... Small. Well... Not really small, but... I mean, in terms of, like, BC's and Alberta's is high. Yeah, Saskatchewan and, and Manitoba. Saskatchewan, yeah, not so much. Um, like, and, that's, not and, that's, that, and that's not so much a symptom of like no economic prosperity. The problem is there's just no population. Yeah, we're not we're not saying their GDP is shit because no. they're not. But it's, it's just that Saskatchewan in reality has a million people, and so your economy can only be. And at the time, I don't even think Saskatchewan was a million people because in the '80s, um, Saskatchewan only became a million people for the first time in a long time, like not even ten years ago. So, Saskatchewan had a really small population during this period. So it's like, how are you really going to compete on your own? Um, well, Saskatchewan, at one point, they had a million people, and then they dropped back down below a million yeah. people. And now they're back up. And now but, they're back up, yeah. But yeah, it was... Uh, I love Saskatchewan, by the way. Yeah, I lived there. It's a great place, but... Um, no, I just think the Cascadia movement's kind of fascinating. Um, and not... And, and they're, yeah, again, like we say, it's, it's not even... It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's also just this recognition that the Pacific Northwest is kind of, like, a geographically and, like, culturally sim- more similar area than... Like it's it kind of actually the thing that makes me like the most interested to me is that it kind of calls to 
brings to attention the fact that, like, a lot of these borders are kind of, like, arbitrary because, like, Northern California, Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia, at least, like, sort of the southern western part or south, like, south, southern part of British Columbia are way more similar to each other than they are to necessarily the rest of their own countries or even their own provinces or states to some extent. Like, Southern California is significantly different than Northern California, right? And I think that that's just so interesting because there is a lot of talk about how, like, in Africa, some a lot of big parts of tension is that these borders were drawn really arbitrarily, not taking into account ethnic similarities and, like, things like that, rather than just, like, we're drawn a line. <laughs> and whoever's on this side is part of this country, and whoever's on that side is part of that country. Yeah, that's and, part of, that. that is partially what I meant by tongue-in-cheek. What I meant mostly by tongue-in-cheek is that they're not... They don't actually have a real party or anything no they don't have a real party it's just a movement and also i don't think most of them are actually want to be independent they it's mostly to highlight the desire for more autonomy for that like those areas yeah actually like interestingly too it's being the term cascadia is being used a little bit more as well just like not so much in that context but like for instance in the major league soccer the like north american pro soccer league the, one of the divisions is actually called the like, Cascadia Division. Mm-hmm. So it's actually all the teams in Washington, um, Oregon, and British Columbia. So it's like the Whitecaps, Timber, Seattle team. I can't remember what they're called now. Are you talking football or yeah. Seahawks? No, the, I meant soccer. M- MLS is soccer. Okay. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I can't remember what they're called now. Um, doesn't matter. But like, it's interesting because Cascadia is starting to be used more in like those kinds of ways as well. But uh, I just thought they were relevant to bring up since we're talking about Western Canadian separatism, even though I really would not classify Cascade, the Cascadia movement as anywhere remotely close to any of these groups because they're not nearly as nuts. Well, they're, they're self-aware. In a weird way, too, they're actually almost more legitimate as a result of that. Yeah, they're more self-aware. Yeah. Than... <laughs> but like as a result of that self-awareness, I would give more legitimacy to that movement than I would to like most of the ones in the 80s because it's yeah. like they're clearly just dog whistle movements whereas cascade the cascadia movement's not even really a movement and i'm like that's more of a movement than those other ones <laughs> and to be fair not all of the current western canada like those western canada parties are not self-aware anymore such as i mentioned briefly the alberta independence party they went inactive and then they were refounded in 2011 i believe they're they also have said no we're no longer a separatist party and they're actually no longer a conservative party, uh, but they the, their sole thing is they want, <laughs> again, direct democracy, but they also want increased autonomy for um, Alberta, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. I think that's fine. I mean, I, I, I mean, the argument for that ultimately comes down to the fact that Alberta is really like a huge part of the economy of Canada. So like, we, therefore, we should maybe have some more proportional influence outside of just money. I think all the, yeah, definitely all the provinces deserve to have equal, like, I I understand why we don't have equal representation in the House of Commons, but in the Senate. Yeah, especially because, like, it's weird to some extent that provinces like British Columbia have fewer representatives than provinces like New Brunswick, who are significantly smaller. British Columbia is, like, the third largest population in the country, and they have fewer representatives in the Senate than a province that has, like, hundreds of thousands of people yeah. like <laughs> unfortunately that process is going to take forever to solve and that's a lot of reason it's just going to be in order to change something like that we need because you, you got to remember especially to the american listeners 
the we don't elect our Senate. The senators are appointed by the the Governor General on the advice of the Prime Minister. So they're appointed basically the Prime Minister. Yeah. Justin Trudeau's um, doing something. He made it mostly independent. He uh, he axed all of the Liberal center senators and appointed independents. Yes, which. Like, almost backfired on him recently, but at least it was a good move. It's a good, good first. Move. Yeah, it's yeah. a good first move. I think what we definitely it's better need. better than no action. Yeah, we definitely need an elected Senate, and we also need equal distribution amongst the provinces. This, it shouldn't be by population. It should be equal, kind of like how the states have two representatives per state. Like, when you come and talk about, like, lack of representation, that's kind of what we mean. Unfortunately, the thing is, Senate here doesn't really have a lot of power. I mean, they can ask the... They have the power to say no more than they have the power to actually do anything else. Yeah. Well, I mean, they can say, can you can you do this again? And the House can just be like, no, nah, we're good. Anyway. There are certain things that they do have to actually do again, though. Like in passing bills. Oh, no, absolutely. Like, yeah. um, in certain things, yeah, but not everything. I mean, the thing about the Senate is that even though they don't actually have that much power in a certain sense, they're still also important because, like... It's just those checks and balances, right? Like, they don't want to let the House just run wild and do what they want to yeah, do. Which is fine. I think yeah. I agree with that. It's, it's just... a checks and balances thing, but it needs to be a more, like, efficient and proportional system yeah, somehow. and democratic. And democratic, yeah. That's going to take forever to solve. I mean, yeah, again, that was part of what was part of the sentiment. Like, all of these places, that, all, of the, all of these parties I mentioned, they wanted an elected Senate. What was it? There was one as the like one elected by population, which is the lower house, and then one elected by region, which is the upper house. That's basically what I mean by equal distribution of seats. So that was where a lot of those angers from. Yeah. So that's pretty much all I got on that. But uh, I, I just thought it was like an interesting topic to talk about. I did a research project on it for a, a class in my undergrad on Canada during the Cold War period. And, uh, I mean, obviously there's so many other things you could have talked about in terms of just Canada's role during the Cold War, but I thought the kind of local and regional things that happened kind of separate from that were, were really fascinating. And also, yeah, I was just kind of inspired by the old bumper sticker, let the Eastern bastards freeze in the dark, which is still hilarious. And of course, uh, I'm, I hope you guys listened to that clip I left where the man said, fight with a rifle. Yeah. I mean, that, he wasn't the only one. There was a ton of people that were just super riled up about that, which, like, fair enough, to some extent. I mean, when you're... Fighting with a rifle, that's a... It's a little much. That's a, really a bit much. But, I mean, being riled up about the fact that, like, you know, your savings might have been completely wiped out overnight and, like, your property is completely devalued, like... The economic turmoil of the period is definitely real. Like it, it was a, it was a thing, and it's not really something to make light of now, or even. I mean, it's it's easy to say like, oh, get over it, like because to some extent, like okay, there's some resentments that maybe we just need to move on. But at the same time, you can't discount it either. So, again, don't feel that separation was legitimate. Do I feel alienation was legitimate? Yes. Yeah, and I think that even now, still, some of that those feelings are fairly legitimate. I mean, well, I've got, I've got some of those feelings yeah. at the moment now, but it's not. I think it's I impossible mean, to really ever completely get rid of them until a lot of major things change, like in the Senate and stuff. Yeah, They're, you're never going to completely get rid of Western alienation, and especially when, I mean, this argument gets taken over a lot by a lot of horrible people, but uh, the idea that you know, provinces like Alberta 
are an economic engine and yet we get kind of screwed over in certain policies. You know, that's that's certainly a thing. I mean, the fact that, like, you know, love or hate the oil field, EI payments were, <laughs> were definitely, like, the slowest to arrive in Alberta compared, and it's like, you know, that's not cool. Like, <laughs> just things like that, you know, that's, it's hard to completely avoid, and I think that some of the feelings of alienation are completely legitimate. Um, I'm definitely not a separatist, though. In Me neither. Any any form. <laughs> no, I love Canada. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like how imperfect and how hard it is to define being a Canadian in a weird way. I think that that's part of like our identity is how diverse and yeah, it's you know, like it's going into like going into the current event thing. Um, Canadians might have heard of that. Um, what is his name? Ex Maxime Bernier. Bernier. Yeah. Bernier. He left the party because he was saying that diversity is ruining the country. I don't think that was mostly. I don't think that was what it was mostly, but. Well, no, but the, he did say that. Because he's less of a dog whistle candidate than the people running the actual Conservative Party. I don't like him, but. I don't like him, but I like him better than Andrew Scheer. I don't like any of them, but anyway, uh, he <laughs> left the party and he pulled a Derek Fildebrandt and is now going to start his own party. Which will probably amount to nothing because starting a federal party in Canada is pretty much impossible. Well, the, I think the most it can probably do is maybe split the French conservative vote. Yeah. So we don't, we don't, we won't know until next year. But yeah, it's like there are a lot of people saying dangerous rhetoric like that. I mean... Derek, you're just as guilty as this as well because you said the exact same thing. Also, this is recorded in your writing, so like, stop from two of your constituents. Just stop. Yeah, please. Please don't. <gasps> no don't one's do going to vote for you. We're really sick of your face. Stop it. <laughs> okay. Anyway. <laughs> um, well, it's just like the reason why I have such strong opinions about this is because I feel people like that are, they're saying really dangerous sentiment and they're giving legitimacy to people who have really horrific views such as i think canadian national party and just people to, to like to me i've we we talked about this in the car yesterday but um i i feel that nationalism has been the driving force of conflict in pretty much every single war in human history except a few here and there i can't name them but for most of human history, yeah, nationalism has been the driving force of war, and that's why I feel nationalism, nationalist sentiments such as that are super dangerous, and why I don't really adhere to a lot of nationalists, not like a lot of nationalism. I wouldn't con consider myself a nationalist, but I mean, I do love Canada, and I do love this country a lot. But I would consider myself a civic nationalist, that, which basically means anyone who's entitled to live here should have a chance to live here. Mm -hmm. I find diversity to be actually a great thing because it makes us see other people. It makes us more empathetic and it makes us not racist pricks. <laughs> but I mean, that's just me. And I'm pretty sure most of you guys, like most Canadians agree with me. Yeah. I do generally think that we're a country full of good people, but obviously the ones who are, the worst are always the loudest. Unfortunately. That's why people, like, we, we need to be louder, people. Yeah. We need to be louder. For sure. Um, yeah. I think that's a good place to end the formal topic. What uh, what did you learn this week? Well, I actually learned two things. One thing, 
And I can't really remember now exactly which podcast I learned this on. Anyways, it was an interview with a, a British uh, duke who was a historian, and he did a lot of history on Churchill. And uh, so my fun fact is that Churchill apparently was very flamboyant and loved unicorns. Loved them. I can believe it. Yeah. Anyway, the other thing I learned, which is a little bit more like interesting, and I can actually back it up with some facts, um, <laughs> and is kind of relevant to uh, a movie that was released pretty recently, The Post. Um, so the guy who leaked the Pentagon Papers and who gave them to journalists in like the New York Times and the Washington Post, Daniel Ellsberg, he worked for the Rand Corporation, which was the main kind of think tank behind the Vietnam War. Anyway, he leaked a bunch of, for those of you who don't know the story, he leaked a bunch of papers called the Pentagon Papers, which were essentially like an assessment by the Rand Corporation about the Vietnam War and the conflict, and were really incriminating in the sense that like people like McNamara and LBJ and Nixon and all these people really knew that the war was going badly and that they could have ended it a lot sooner, and they didn't, and amongst other implications. But basically, it was really not a good look for them, and the Nixon government tried to quash the Washington took them to court, actually, on all the journalists to court and lost. But anyways, Daniel Ellsberg was the guy who who snuck those papers out and risked, like, significant jail time for it. He was a whistleblower. But at the same time he was doing that, uh, so this is what I learned, thanks to the New York Public Library podcast, which is super good, by the way. In this episode, they interviewed Daniel Ellsberg because he recently just released a book, which actually talks about other things that he, he snuck out at the same time, which was... Uh, a bunch of papers, documents pertaining to uh, America's nuclear program during the 1960s. And so the book is actually called, it's called The Doomsday Machine. And uh, I just got it and I'm really looking forward to, to reading it. But, well, I actually got the audiobook, but for, for work purposes. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm really fascinated to, to listen to it. This is the first time he was really able to, to actually release them, in part because obviously that's pretty confidential shit and... Potentially pretty terrifying. So that's what I learned this week. I didn't learn this this week. I actually talked about this in the Korean War episode and then had to cut it out for time. I mean, as you know, that... Cut a little out of control. <laughs> but there was a man... We, we talked about Mig Alley a little bit. And uh, one of the, uh, there was a British, fighter, or British pilot who was still piloting a propeller plane. And he was, he and a group were flying and they got intercepted by MiGs and Carmichael managed to shoot down a MiG. It was the first time a propeller based aircraft shot down a jet fighter and none of Carmichael's men were lost and the MiGs had to retreat. And part of the reason I was reading more about this, part of the reason why they were able to be so successful in propeller planes is because the MiGs actually had the disadvantage of speed, so they couldn't maneuver as well as... Yeah, you lose some uh, turning capability. Oh, big time. <laughs> but I did, I, yeah, I told that story in the podcast and then I had to cut it, even, which is a shame because it's such a great story. But yeah, he shot down a MiG with, in his, <laughs> in his, I believe it was a Spitfire, but yeah, he shot, he shot it down and thought it was a it's a great story it's one of those heroic moments yeah i guess also just want to give a quick like shout out uh we're recording this today and i'm on this right now uh john mccain's funeral is taking place mm. in the united states and uh, as much as like i disagreed with john mccain ideologically 
a lot. Um, <laughs> I generally respected him as as a as a statesman in like the truest form of the word. He cared a lot about what he was doing and generally conducted himself with with tact. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I agree. As he a was... non-conservative, I'm still sad at his passing. And yeah, <laughs> he's he's definitely in my eyes. He's what people like the leadership of the Republican Party should be. Yeah, I mean, it's well, what all politicians should aim to be. Like, you can disagree with each other on ideological basis and, and whatnot, because that's the point of politics. Everyone has different ideas. But uh, watch his town hall speeches because he did a lot of calling. He did not really calling people out, but he did a lot of a lot to show his true character when people tried to. Yeah, there's, there's a man who said he was afraid. It was a woman, actually. Was, no, no, oh, no. There was a, it was before there was a man, and he said, uh, he said, I'm afraid of Obama being elected and McCain said you shouldn't be because he's a decent family man and that was he's... the woman who called him an Arab that was after I just watched the video oh, okay because he yeah. just said the same thing to her too yeah I know but he said <laughs> you don't have to worry yeah he's a statesman he loves this country he the only reason why I'm running against him is because we have things we differ we yeah. di- we disagree on I don't believe I, I'll be better or worse than him mm-hmm. and I, I do think to some extent that like John McCain certainly could have acted better in a number of ways, but I mean, no one's perfect. Yeah. I think that ultimately, while he could have acted better in many ways, I think that he always acted the way, he, or he always made the decisions he made and acted the way he acted because he truly believed he was doing the right thing. Or, Absolutely. Or what was best, not necessarily the right thing, but what he was doing what was best. And so I think that I can ultimately respect that, even yeah. if I don't respect the choices that were always actually made. <laughs> yeah. So this is, just, this is partially my proof that, yes, I do... There are conservatives I do respect. <laughs> I I, even though I don't agree with them, <laughs> yeah. them, I do respect them. There are even politicians in Alberta that I respect. For example, my MLA, Leela here, I do have respect for her. I do have respect for Rick McIver. But people I don't have respect for, people <laughs> like Jason Kenney or Derek Fildebrandt. And I just feel that their rhetoric is dangerous and not the right path that mm-hmm. we need to be going down. But... Also, another really quick shout out that I just saw. Uh, shout out to the city of Calgary for uh, uh, lowering their flags to half mast to acknowledge the passing of the president of the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region Three, Marlene Lance. That's pretty cool. Mm. Yeah. Also, rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> another quick thing we're gonna kind of ramble on, but we ended quite early there than we expected. Uh, yeah. Oops. <laughs> uh, for those of you in Calgary, happy Pride. Yeah. I hope you're having a good time. Congratulations to Mount Royal for the sidewalk. sidewalk. And also, big congratulations to Chestermere because you guys also got your sidewalk as well. Yeah. So and congratulations. Uh, also, I just want to say I'm really proud to work at a uh, village brewery where I work at. And like the amount of support they give to Pride Calgary is pretty pretty cool. And I'm looking forward to going to see some of my, my village fam tomorrow at Pride. Everyone be safe and be kind to each other. And please, straight folks, don't don't uh we're not the problem yeah don't uh, please please don't uh, associate us with the problem just because we're straight no but also for straight folks don't like appropriate pride for your own oh no absolutely not everyone be respectful be nice to each other and also please acknowledge that our trans brothers and sisters matter too um (laughs) so absolutely yeah Happy Pride. Happy and, Pride. Uh, I hope you... Enjoy, uh, the, enjoy the parade tomorrow. Everyone. Yeah, any of you who, who have gone, what is going to be tomorrow, hope you had a great time. Hope that the weather's nice. And 
I think that's all that we need to say. Yep. So thank you guys so much. Again, happy Pride. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And again, because I'm like to pander, if you really want to see this ha- see this podcast keep going and help us out, please support us on Patreon and all of the other platforms. But financial support is always really helpful. Again, even if you just donate a dollar a month, that'd be great. It seriously goes a long way. Yeah, I... It's it's quite a simple process to actually sign up. Apparently, all you really need to do is hit become a patron and uh, then yeah. sign up. I think I think you will need to put in credit card information. Don't worry, that site is super secure. I know there was a bit of a discrepancy last month over it because, but it wasn't because of a breach. No yeah. one, no credit card information was getting out. It was just a issue with PayPal, so people weren't getting. The payments were getting rejected. Mm. That's all that happened. Yeah. And also, please support us. Leave leave reviews. If you leave reviews, especially on iTunes, um, it helps us get discovered by other people who are looking to find new podcasts. And that's ultimately what this is kind of about. So any support you can give, whether or not it's just supporting us on social media or at iTunes, leaving reviews and list, continuing to listen or do- donating financial support, we really appreciate all of you and hope that you continue to do so because we really want to keep doing this absolutely we love doing this and so far people seem to love hearing it so we're doing we're enjoying it and so far hopefully everyone else seems to be so we're going to keep going as long as we can and we uh appreciate any support you're willing to willing to fork out absolutely so yeah thank you guys so much uh this is jonah signing off and Lindsay. thanks guys have a good one